Hello and welcome to the December 2015 episode of the Lesbian Gay Law Notes podcast. I am Ed Skinner, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar Association of Greater New York. With me as always is Professor Art Leonard of New York Law School, the Chief Editor and Writer of Lesbian Gay Law Notes, the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest legal and legislative developments affecting the LGBT community here and abroad. Just a reminder, if you're listening to us on iTunes and enjoying our program, please do take a minute to rate us highly so that we will continue to gain more listeners. All right, first up this month, we began to see how the U.S. Supreme Court's June decision in Obergefell versus Hodges may have had implications beyond simply the right to marry for same-sex couples. It is now being cited in cases involving the right of former partners to have standing to seek custody or visitation of children raised by gay couples. Can you start us off with a decision from the Oklahoma Supreme Court, and then we'll talk about Michigan? Okay. Well, both of these cases really raise the interesting question of when do constitutional rights begin? And to the extent that constitutional rights, after all, are supposed to be based on the Constitution itself, uh, one would say that once a provision is added to the Constitution, that will later be seen by the Supreme Court as a source of a particular right, that right exists. It's just a question of the court recognizing it. Uh, this, this question came up during the oral argument a few years ago in the Proposition 8 case in the Supreme Court when Justice Scalia asked, when did same-sex couples get the right to marry? And uh, the response to that uh, by Ted Olson, who was arguing on behalf of uh, those who were attacking Proposition 8, uh, was, well, when did uh, people of color get the right to be free of discrimination on the basis of race? And the answer is not when the court decided Brown v. Board of Education in 1954. It was when the states ratified the 14th Amendment. Uh, so the answer is, is clear that the right to marry existed. The question was whether same-sex couples could afford themselves with that right. And when the Supreme Court uh, accepted that view, it meant that they had that right all along. It's just that it hadn't been recognized yet. So now we have situations uh, in uh, these, uh, they usually lesbian mother custody disputes, but not always, uh, where uh, the biological mother, after the couple splits up, is refusing to allow contact for the non-biological mother. And the non-biological mother uh, says, uh, we would have married if we could have before we had the children. But we didn't because our state didn't allow us to, or even if we went out of state, our state wouldn't recognize it. Uh, so I should be treated as if I had married, or the court should use some sort of equitable doctrine to give me fair treatment in light of the fact that we were denied the right to marry. Uh, and the Oklahoma Supreme Court in uh, Ramey against Sutton, which was announced on November 17th, uh, was facing this kind of situation. Kimberly Sutton proposed marriage to Charlene Ramey in 2004 at a time when, of course, same-sex marriage was not available in Oklahoma. In fact, the only place in the United States uh, that uh, allowed same-sex marriage in 2004 was Massachusetts. And it's, it's unclear from the opinion whether uh, this proposal followed the Massachusetts Supreme Court opinion going into effect in May of 2004. But in any event... Uh, there was a marriage proposal. There was a non-legal ceremony, an exchange of rings. Uh, the women considered themselves to be life partners. They decided to have a child together. Sutton became pregnant through donor insemination from 
a sperm donated by a friend of the family who uh, agreed that he would have no parental rights or responsibilities. And their baby boy was born on March 22, 2005. And according to the allegations and the complaint, which are accepted as true for purposes of deciding this motion on standing, uh, Ramey was a full participant in every way that a husband might be a full participant in raising a child until the women split up. Uh, and even after they split up, they continued to live together as roommates for a while, uh, while Ramey sought other, other uh, housing. So after she moved out, she wanted to preserve her relationship with the child, and uh, she filed a uh, suit seeking a declaration of her parental rights, visitation rights, perhaps joint custody, and uh, the argument by Sutton, the biological mother, was that because they had no written parenting agreement and because Ramey had no legal relationship to the child, she lacked standing to seek any kind of uh, relief from the court, and the court agreed and dismissed the case. Now, the reason that the issue of no written agreement had been raised was because in the Oklahoma Supreme Court has, in 2014, in a case called Eldridge against Taylor, upheld the right to enforce a written agreement about custody and visitation uh, in a case having very similar facts to this one, uh, the only distinction being that uh, the couple had executed an agreement. Uh, prior to uh, the biological mother becoming pregnant and giving birth. So the lower court's dismissal was really based on the fact that there was no written agreement here. Otherwise, uh, the concept of in loco parentis could be invoked uh, to show that uh, Ramey was intended to be the mother of this child and her relationship had been encouraged by the birth mother and they had actually helped themselves out as the equivalent of a married family. Uh, so in this case, the court says, well, after Obergefell and after Bishop, which was the Tenth Circuit case uh, in Oklahoma that uh, came before Obergefell, which the Supreme Court denied cert in October of 2014, uh, they said, in light of Obergefell, it's clear that these women had a right to marry back in 2004 and were denied that right. And we think that in light of Obergefell, the in loco parentis doctrine can be applied in a situation like this where, first of all, the couple were legally unable to marry at the time. Uh, they engaged in intentional family planning to have a child and to co-parent that child. And the biological parent had acquiesced and encouraged the same-sex partner's parental role following the birth of the child. So this is a ruling that uh, would be characterized as transitional. It deals with situations that occurred prior to the decisions in uh, Bishop and in Obergefell, uh, presumably over a period of time the need for this doctrine may fade away uh, because once children reach the age of majority, you're not going to have custody and visitation disputes anymore. So children born uh, during the uh, period before those, those cases have aged out of this being a, a legal issue that will have to be uh, addressed. But in the meantime, it seems that this doctrine would logically only apply uh, to uh, children who were born before the Obergefell decision. Uh, so going forward, uh, if people want protection here, gonna, they should get married. They're going to have children or at the very least have a written parenting agreement. Mm -hmm.
because under the existing uh, precedent in Oklahoma, those with a written parenting agreement will be enforced even if they weren't married. Uh, so that's the, the Oklahoma situation. In Michigan, uh, we had a uh, somewhat similar situation with the exception that the couple in Michigan actually went and got married outside the jurisdiction. Uh, Jennifer Stankovich and Leanne Milliron were married in Canada in 2007. At the time, Milliron was already pregnant, according to Stankovich's allegations, uh, through donor insemination, gave birth to the couple's child. Uh, Stankovich alleges she was intended to be the co-parent, and the, for a brief period of time, they were raising the child together. But they separated in March 2009. Uh, originally, Milliron was open to a visitation schedule for Stankovich, but eventually there was a falling out, and Stankovich filed suit, uh, asserting her right to full participation as a parent in raising this child. Uh, Milliron filed for summary judgment. The trial court granted it. At the time, of course, Michigan did not allow same-sex marriage or recognize same-sex marriages from out of state. So as far as the Michigan courts were concerned, the Canadian marriage was a nullity. It was of no effect. Uh, Stankovich appealed uh, through the lower courts to the Michigan Supreme Court, and by the time it got there, the marriage equality litigation was underway in Michigan, DeBoer versus Snyder, and the court put the case on hold until an ultimate resolution of that case. In the DeBoer case, you will recall a federal district judge, Bernard Friedman, had ruled in favor of the plaintiffs. It had been appealed to the Sixth Circuit, which reversed and held that same-sex couples did not have a right to marry. Uh, cert was granted by the U.S. Supreme Court, and uh, the DeBoer case was consolidated with cases from the other states in the Sixth Circuit. And so the consolidated case was decided under the name of uh, the Ohio case of Murderfell. But, of course, it applied to DeBoer as well. Uh, so the uh, Michigan Supreme Court remanded the case They'd been sitting on it. They didn't issue a decision. They remanded the case to the Court of Appeals. And uh, the Court of Appeals said, because of the United States Supreme Court's opinion in Obergefell, plaintiff has standing under the equitable parent doctrine, because Michigan now is required to recognize the party's same-sex marriage, and the plaintiff's complaint alleges facts that, if proven, are sufficient to establish equitable parenthood. Uh, so, in effect, the court is saying Stankovich is basically in the same position from a legal standpoint as the husband of a woman who gives birth during the marriage to a child who is not the husband's biological offspring. And the husband could, of course, assert parental rights. Uh, they didn't address the question whether there should be a presumption that a child born to a married lesbian is also the legal child of her uh, spouse. But I think the courts will get there. It's, it's a matter of time. At this point, they're willing to uh, use the equitable parent doctrine to create standing. And it's important to emphasize in both of these cases, from Oklahoma and Michigan, that once standing is established, of course, it will be treated as a normal custody visitation type dispute where the court will have to determine whether it's in the best interest of the child to maintain parental relationships with both women and uh, to establish visitation schedules and perhaps joint custody, uh, perhaps some kind of joint decision-making. Uh, you know, the what flows from that depends on the procedures followed in the particular states. But getting the foot in the door 
of standing is important. And, and it's important to point out that New York has not gotten that far yet. Yes. <laughs> New York still relies on that old 1991 case, uh, Allison. Virginia M versus Allison D. Hello, knock on wood. We're hoping soon we will get a, a new uh, a new situation in New York. Um, all right, we'll take a short break, and when we return, we'll change gears and discuss an important ruling impacting all government discrimination against transgender individuals. We are back discussing Atkins versus City of New York, a case arising out of the 2011 Occupy Wall Street protests here in New York. Uh, the case could set an important precedent going forward that all discrimination against transgender people by the government or any agent of the government is presumptively unconstitutional. Can you tell us about it, Art? Yeah, this is a very, very interesting case. Uh, the uh, plaintiff, uh, Mr. Atkins, is uh, a transgender man. And he was participating in the Brooklyn Bridge protest on October 1st, 2011, as part of the Occupy Wall Street protest activity in New York. And together with uh, many other protesters, he was arrested. He was taken uh, to a station house uh, where he was put in with other male detainees. Uh, the police uh, evidently had not uh, identified him as transgender. Uh, no one was complaining. There was no indication of any safety issues. Uh, but when the police figured out that he was transgender, uh, according to the allegations in the complaint, the officers ridiculed him, remo removed him from the cell with the other men, handcuffed him to a rail near the restroom for seven hours while the other male inmates were provided with sandwiches, and he was not. So he was held... He was. Uh, handcuffed to a railing in what he alleges was an uncomfortable position that left him sore for weeks afterwards uh, and was deprived of food. And uh, he alleges, uh, based on uh, personal knowledge and on stories told by other uh, transgender people who have encountered the New York City Police Department, that transgender people who are detained are singled out for this kind of treatment. Uh, so he brought suit against city of New York against uh, Mayor Bloomberg, who was in office at the time, against several other officials under 42 U.S.C. Section 1983, uh, the statute authorizes civil rights claims against the federal government, claiming deprivation of federal civil rights, excessive force, denial of equal rights, unreasonable conditions of confinement, failure to intervene to prevent harm, uh, municipal liability and supervisory liability and a whole bunch of state law claims as well, which were thrown out at an early point in the case. Uh, but the uh, the main focus, really, of uh, Judge Jed Rakoff, who was dealing with the city's motion to dismiss, uh, was what kind of an equal protection claim could Atkins raise? Uh, he clearly met the pleading requirement of showing unequal treatment. He was singled out for differential treatment. Uh, but the main issue was what level of scrutiny should be applied because uh, Rakoff seemed inclined to accept the argument, at least of the police officers in the precinct, that uh, they were acting in accord of their understanding of the security situation and uh, the, the need to preserve order and concerns for, even for the safety of an inmate. Uh, transgender inmate who's thrown in with other male inmates. 
so this might pass a rational basis test. Uh, so the, the question for him is whether heightened scrutiny would apply, in which case uh, you really wouldn't grant the motion to dismiss because there would have to be some kind of trial of the question whether there, there was a substantial uh, state interest at stake that uh, required this kind of treatment of Atkins. Uh, so Rakoff took his lead, interestingly, from the Second Circuit's decision in Windsor against the United States. Windsor, of course, was the challenge to the Defense of Marriage Act by E.D. Windsor, uh, which went up through the federal courts in New York before going to the U.S. Supreme Court. And at the level of the Second Circuit, a three-judge panel ruled by a two-to-one vote that uh, differential treatment by the federal government on the basis sexual orientation required heightened scrutiny and applied the four-factor test that has been uh, identified by analysts of past Supreme Court equal protection decisions as factors that the court will deem to be significant in making such a determination. So Judge Rakoff looked at that and he said, all right, the Second Circuit employed this four-factor test in the case of anti-gay discrimination and found that heightened scrutiny was merited. I should apply the same four-factor test to transgender people, and when I do so, I reach the same conclusion. Uh, the first factor is whether uh, transgender people have suffered a history of persecution and discrimination. Asked and answered. No problem meeting that test. Uh, that gender identity has no relation to the ability to contribute to society. And he concluded that that is a correct statement, that... Uh, in fact, there is no objective basis to treat transgender people differently uh, without a showing of some spe uh, specific circumstances. Uh, that transgender people are a discernible, identifiable group for purposes of equal protection analysis. And he found that that is easily met as well. And finally, that transgender people are politically weakened to the extent that they need the assistance of the courts to receive fair treatment from the government. And he found that all of these uh, factors were met, and therefore differential treatment by the police of a transgender person requires the state to show that there is some substantial, some significant state interest that requires it. And this is really significant because although transgender people have been achieving a fair degree of protection under various federal statutes and even under the Equal Protection Clause in prior cases, this is the first time that it's really been premised solely on gender identity as a matter of the standard four-factor test. Uh, the, the prior precedent that people would really look to is the Sixth Circuit's decision from 2011 in Glenn against Brumby involving a transgender employee of a state legislature in the South. And uh, in that case, the court premised heightened scrutiny on the idea that gender identity discrimination is a form of sex discrimination using the sex stereotyping theory that the Supreme Court had adopted uh, long ago in Pricewaterhouse versus Hopkins. Uh, and that is the basis on which quite a few courts have come to the view that uh, discrimination based on gender identity is uh, in violation of statutory provisions banning sex discrimination. Mm -hmm. But this is, I think it's, it's conceptually sort of a step further that Rakoff takes. He doesn't refer to stereotyping theory. Instead, he refers to the very factors that the Second Circuit had used in finding that sexual orientation is 
a quasi-suspect classification. Uh, so this is uh, an important step. Uh, now, in terms of the actual outcome of the case, Rakoff found that because what he was holding here uh, was derived from the Windsor decision, and because this arrest took place a year before the Windsor decision, the actual individual defendants in this case enjoyed uh, qualified immunity from liability. But he said the city of New York itself does not enjoy qualified immunity. Only governmental actors enjoy qualified immunity, not the government. And that Atkins had alleged a pattern of treatment, that this wasn't just individual police officers exercising the, their discretion. They were following standard operating procedure for uh -huh. dealing with transgender uh, detainees. Uh, so he felt the city could be held liable, and he refused to dis dismiss the equal protection claim against the city. Uh, and uh, notified the parties that uh, he would schedule a conference to meet to discuss how the case will proceed. Uh, so it's a, an interesting development. It will be interesting to see if the city tries to take it to the Second Circuit, where we might get a uh, circuit precedent on this, which would be very helpful indeed. And as of now, it's just a district court decision. And this uh, is the same judge who uh, was is handling the Medicaid case uh that was survived a motion to dismiss a couple months right. ago as well, right? Right. So he's a, a good judge to get a transgender rights case in front of. <laughs> definitely, definitely. This is a judge who gets it. And yeah. you can tell, you know, from reading his opinion and the terminology he uses and the way he speaks about the history and everything else, he understands this. Yeah. All right. We'll take another short break. And when we return, we'll stay in the arena of constitutional rights for the transgender community but make a slight detour from equal protection into due process. All right, we're back discussing the case of Love versus Johnson, a constitutional challenge by several transgender individuals to Michigan's policy for changing your gender on driver's licenses. How did the federal district court respond to this motion to dismiss, Art? Well, uh... With about the same uh, approach of Judge Rakoff, although mm -hmm. uh, depending on a different uh, clause in the 14th Amendment, uh, this was a lawsuit that responded to an action by Michigan Secretary of State Ruth Johnson in 2011, uh, issuing a formal policy that if someone applies to change their sex on a driver's license or other state ID, they would have to provide a certified birth certificate showing the sex that they wish to change on the, on the driver's license or ID, and specifically providing that a U.S. passport is not acceptable as proof of a sex change. And this poses a significant hardship because in Michigan, in order to get a change on a birth certificate, you have to go through full sex reassignment procedure, including surgery, uh, surgical alteration. Uh, and that's true in many states, although not all. And, but there are some states that won't even allow changes on birth certificates. And furthermore, the State Department, uh, in recognizing the realities of the life of transgender people, has recognized that uh, gender identity is not a matter of uh, physical genitals. Gender identity is a matter of self-definition uh, that uh, needs to be recognized, uh, certainly in cases where people are living in the gender that they identify with, are grooming and dressing that way, uh, to have a passport 
that uh, that has a picture and any gender identification that's inconsistent with the way one is presenting oneself makes it pretty useless to use as an identification device uh, to travel uh, across uh, national borders, which is the purpose of a passport. Uh, so the State Department has backed away from the requirement of surgery and has said what we require is a uh, declaration from a qualified medical individual that the person is transgender and has received appropriate treatment. And we leave it up to the doctor to certify what the appropriate treatment is. It doesn't have to be surgery. Uh, and as a result of the State Department taking this position, the Michigan Secretary of State said, we won't accept passports anymore as proof of sex change. Uh, in default of that, we're going to only accept birth certificates. So for people in Michigan who, uh, for whatever reason, are not going the full surgical route, they can't get a driver's license that depicts them appropriately. And that's quite an inconvenience. A driver's license is sort of a universal ID. And for people who don't drive, uh, Michigan, like most states, issues a non-driver's license, a state uh, identification card that can substitute for a driver's license for purposes of, you know, you're going into cash and check, or uh, you're being carded uh, in an establishment that's adult only or whatever. You know, you need an ID. Uh, and if you're in one of those states, and I think Michigan is one, where you need an ID to vote. It's significant. You need an ID to get on an airplane. Of course, you can, get a, you can use a passport for that. But the problem that transgender people faced in Michigan was not only the high barrier that Michigan places on changing the birth certificate, it's anyone who's born out of state has to apply to the state where they were born to change the birth certificate. And some of these plaintiffs in the case allege that they were born in states that don't allow sex changes on birth certificates. Uh, I suppose they could sue their home states, go through this whole process and try to get a court to order the state to make the change. Uh, litigation is going on in many places around the country, challenging restrictions on uh, changing birth certificates. But in the meanwhile, they have the pressing need in Michigan because that's where they live. Uh, so they made several arguments. One of them was that it violates their right of privacy because it means every time they use a uh, driver's license or other state ID that misidentifies them it is outing them as transgender to whoever is asking, whether it's a police officer, whether it's uh, someone in the store who's requiring a bank or wherever. Uh, and therefore, they're being outed. And they were able to rely on prior Sixth Circuit precedent that transgender people have a privacy right with regard to their gender identity. Uh, furthermore, given the history of violence against transgender people, they were able to plausibly argue that this placed them at great risk of bodily injury, uh, this uh, sort of forced outing if they're uh, required to show their ID. Uh, so based on these allegations, the court said that there was a definite due process claim here, that it would be inappropriate to dismiss the case at this early stage, and the plaintiff should be allowed to develop their, uh, their proof further. Uh, obviously, on a motion to dismiss, the court is treating as true the allegations of the complaint for the purpose of testing the legality of the motion. So this case will proceed as well. And uh, this joins the pantheon of uh, appropriately named cases, Love versus John. <laughs> All right. We'll take our last short break. And when we return for our Of Note segment, we'll discuss how two Mississippi Supreme Court justices announced that they do not think Obergefell is the law of the land.
All right, we're back to wrap up with our Of Note segment for this episode. A case brought by a woman named Lauren Beth Chakala Chatham uh, with the question of whether a married same-sex couple could get a divorce has been waiting for resolution from the Mississippi Supreme Court for nearly a year. Uh, These women married during the brief window in California uh, after the California Supreme Court ruled uh, that there was a right to marry for same-sex couples but before uh, Prop 8 passed in November of that, that year in 2008. Um, moved back to Mississippi, uh, but then uh, relationship fell apart. Just these things happen. And uh, tried to get a divorce. Um, uh, I believe they filed the case in 2013. And uh, the at the time, Mississippi had a, both a statutory and a constitutional ban. Uh, the women came together and reached a settlement on all property issues. So the only question really remaining was, can we simply order this divorce? And uh, the trial, or the chancery court, as it's called in Mississippi, the trial court, uh, said that he could not grant them a divorce. So they put a question before the Mississippi Supreme Court. There was oral argument uh, last February. Uh, They also asked for supplemental briefing. Uh, and then they just sort of sat on it. And after a Burgefell uh, decision was handed down by the U.S. Supreme Court, both the Attorney General in Mississippi and the parties just said, can you just please enter an order at this point? There's not much left to decide here. Um, so nearly five months after the Obergefell decision, they finally uh, did that. Five of the Mississippi Supreme Court justices signed a simple order in support of the same-sex couple getting a divorce, uh, reversing the previous trial court order, ruling that the women could not. Four justices objected to the order, however. Two justices uh, agreed that this was the right uh, decision, but said that there should have been a full published opinion for the purposes of all the folks in Mississippi having clarity on what the new state of the law is in Mississippi. Um... Like several of the Louisiana Supreme Court justices did in July, however, Justices Jess Dickinson and Josiah Coleman, however, uh, penned separate dissents setting forth their views on why Obergefell could be ignored. And they relied chiefly on the Obergefell dissents uh, by Chief Justice Roberts, Justices Scalia, Thomas, and Alito, um, and both of them supported the other uh, dissent uh, of the, the other justice. Um, Looking at Justice Dickinson first, he claims that Obergefell is the kind of decision that is in no way a constitutional interpretation, but rather is a legislative act by a judicial body uh, that, as Chief Justice Roberts put it, a decision that has no basis in the Constitution or Supreme Court precedent. Um, And then he offers as an analogy the sort of worst possible example of such such a situation as being if the U.S. Supreme Court concluded that gun violence impedes the flow of interstate commerce, leading it to interpret the Commerce Clause as granting the Congress power to confiscate all privately owned guns. Um, And then as the principal support, of course, neither of these justices have any real legal support to cite for the idea that a Supreme Court decision can be ignored. But they found uh, this statement calling for constitutional resistance uh, that was posted on the website of the American Principal, Principles Project uh, in October. Uh, I, I think it's it's interesting to focus just for a moment, uh, since we have a little time, as we're running shorter than we normally do on our podcast, that there is a strand out there in the country of uh, legal scholarship and legal thought 
that considers the Obergefell decision to be totally illegitimate. Uh, and it's really based heavily on Justice Scalia's assertion that only those constitutional rights that the founding generation or the adopting generation of a provision would have recognized can be recognized by the court. It's, it's the idea of freezing the Constitution at the time of adoption on the theory that because it's a written Constitution, uh, it can't be changed. And because, it's, because of interpreting the language of the Constitution, we have to interpret it to mean what the framers intended it to mean. Uh, this is a view of the Constitution that has never had the support of the entire of a majority of the Supreme Court. It's, it's a rather extreme view, and it's contradictory of the views of the framers themselves, uh, Madison in particular, uh, who uh, talked about the, the Constitution as something that you make for the ages and that each generation has to adapt it to its own needs. Uh, and, uh, and so uh, it's, it's, a, it's an ahistorical view that purports to be based on history. And, of course, the, n- neither of these justices here or other folks uh, that sort of side with them ever talk about Loving or Lawrence or Windsor and how, you know, by the time you got Joe Obergefell, it was really a connecting the dots sort of issue more so than just pulling it out of thin air. You well, know? well, the point is that Justice Scalia predicted Obergefell in his uh, dissent in Lawrence. And, in fact, anticipated it in his dissent in Romer versus Evans in 1996. So uh, it, it seems to me that uh, there will be this stubborn minority who will insist that it's not legitimate. Yeah. But then, you know, there's a stubborn minority, uh, minority of liberal scholars who say that Citizens United is not legitimate, or that Bush v. Gore, which gave the election to uh, George W. Bush in 2000, was not legitimate. Uh, the losing side frequently raises the issue of legitimacy. It just seems to be uh, special vehemence here. But I suspect that will fall away because public opinion it continues to develop in support of marriage equality. And uh, as marriage equality has been implemented around the country and it has not caused any major disruptions or any major outbreak of heterosexual couples rampantly divorcing or abusing their children or whatever, uh, it will come to be seen as just the normal part of the landscape. But for now, it's a rallying point, uh, and and we see that in uh, some of the position statements by the Republican presidential candidates. And there's to be also an obsession with what the vote count was in Obergefell, that uh, if it was a unanimous decision, it would be different, but because it was 5-4, that really calls into question. And uh, the other justice here... Uh, sort of said, well, what if five justices, you know, said that uh, every household is required to own a giraffe or every, uh, the Constitution requires all members of fill-in-the-blank ethnic group to be removed to work camps? And I don't know if he was being joking there or not, because, of course, there is a decision that says such a thing is is constitutionally okay. Right, Uh, although it's a decision that's been widely discredited. But but the point is that... uh, this is uh, loser's remorse, and I think it, it fades away over time. Uh, that Whether it's a 5-4 to four decision or a unanimous decision, it gets absorbed into the body of federal case law unless it's specifically reversed by the Supreme Court. The fact that it's 5-4 to four makes no difference. And I, I don't see that uh, the people who are so upset here uh, were critical of Bowers versus Hardwick, which was a 5-4 to four decision.
And so many of the Roberts Court's decisions have been 5-4, uh, you know, going in, in conservative directions and, you know, Citizens United and uh, the Heller decision. Right. And Shelby County. Shelby County. Voting Rights Act case. So are all those similarly, you know, well, discredited? I would argue that they are. Right, right, right. <laughs> but uh, I, I don't think I put a manifesto on the Internet to that effect, encouraging lower courts to refuse to follow them. And another thing this situation sort of brings up is so many uh, state Supreme Courts now have elected, uh, the justices are elected to the position, and we've sort of seen this in, uh, you know, the Alabama Supreme Court has sort of similarly said some outlandish things about uh, ignoring Supreme Court and and, and such that sort of uh, a lot of people who call for reform of state courts say that this is an example of why you shouldn't be electing state Supreme Court justices because it leads them to sometimes say some nutty things for the next election. Well, electing judges strikes me as a bad idea, and and certainly our founders uh, at the federal level thought it would be a bad idea because they decided that all federal judges would be appointed. Uh, We should also probably note before we sign off that uh, the Alabama Supreme Court case that we described in in such caustic and negative terms, uh, refusing to uh, extend full faith and credit to uh, an out-of-state adoption, uh, a petition has been filed with the U.S. Supreme Court. So there is a possibility that that case will get up to the Supreme Court, although uh, the time is passing for uh, a cert grant that would be uh, would result in an argument this term. So if, it, if cert isn't granted within the next few weeks, the chances are it would be in the next term. Mm-hmm. All right. That's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening. To read the latest issue of Law Notes, please become a member of Legal or a Law Notes subscriber by visiting www.le-gal.org. This and future podcasts can also be found online in iTunes or at legal.podbean.com. Please take a moment to give us lots of stars there if you like the podcast. Follow the gal on Twitter at LGBTBarOnY, or like us on Facebook. Thanks again, happy holidays, and we will see you in 2016.